It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, I'm Matt Kelly. And I'm Matt Dancona. And this is The Two Mats for the week ending Friday, the 26th of January. The podcast with an uncoded format. Exactly. Mm. What did we talk about this episode? We talked uh, with the great Tanit Koch, uh, yeah. columnist at the New European, about what's been going on in Germany. And I have to say it was absolutely gripping. She's always good. And she was in fine was fine amazing. form. Terrific. Well, she explained a lot to me. That yeah, I didn't know. Me. Yeah. I really yeah. put it in context. And, and then in the we, second half, we talk about the Oscars. And we, 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 we pivoted, as they say, yeah. in, in Westminster to uh, to the Oscars. And your, your amazing surprise nomination for best movie yeah, it's, which it, will shock readers I think, it, this, to I think it's going to come out the blue it's, yeah. it's, it's the it's the it's the twist isn't it well stick around for the second half but I think <laughs> Matt's the first twist half is the, this first half is the substance of the podcast and then it's me talking rubbish about movies talking crap about movies, <laughs> movies. exactly <laughs> what could you what could be better what should we call this podcast I think it's Germany fighting fascism is it something like that it Germany. is well it is because exactly it is that. Okay, right. Well, that'll do. So this is The Two Mats, episode 30, Germany fighting fascism. Enjoy. Enjoy. So, Matt, what are we going to talk about this week? Well, I think uh, both of us were very struck and a bit inspired by what was going on um, in the streets of uh, Germany over the weekend. Indeed. And uh, maybe we should have a quick clip of to remind us of what was going on. So that um, is is what, a million people, something like one point four million people across Germany in huge numbers of people there in in Berlin, and I think that was from the top of the Bundestag overlooking. Yeah. I mean, filling the Tiergarten and near the the Brandenburg Gates, and you know, very evocative scenes of hundreds of thousands of people protesting about the rise of a far right party alternative for Deutschland, the yes. AfD. And we are joined. I'm delighted to say from Bonn by. New European columnist Tanit Koch. 
Tanit, hello. Hi, Tanit. Hi, how are you? You're going to explain to us what's going on, aren't you? I'll, I'll German-splain, yes. Tanit is our German-splaining columnist every week in the New European, and she's now going to German-splain a rather serious turn of events in Germany and uh, and the German people's reaction to it. What's what going is, on? What is going Helps on? Helps out, Tanit. Well, um, the trigger, which is quite interesting because everybody's talking about the crisis of journalism, etc. The, the trigger was a, a great investigative report by... Um, uh, a team of fact checkers and investigative um, journalists called Collective, and they basically infiltrated a, a meeting, uh, a sort of weird alt-right identitarian offsite, uh, which took place in November um, near near Berlin in Potsdam, where um, members of the AfD, identitarians, I don't know, some sort of fascist dentist, and um, even fringe nationalist members of the CDU um, met and discussed how to re-migrate, that the term re-migration sort of seems to become big in those circles, basically how to mass deport um, millions of migrants from Germany and also uh, quite a substantial number of so-called non-assimilated citizens, which obviously is is blatantly illegal or would be blatantly anti-constitutional. They also discussed how to fundraise for for right-wing or or far-right-wing influencers how to delegitimize institutions such as the Constitutional Court or public broadcasters. And Collective published, a couple of weeks ago, published a good report, a very, very insightful report about this meeting, which triggered those mass protests and sort of people to, to take to the streets to support democracy. Because obviously, we shouldn't wait until it's too late. That's basically what caused that that sentiment. I guess the first question to ask, Tanit, is why the AFD has grown in popularity because it's polling around 23%, I gather, just behind the CDU, CSU. Um, How do we account for that? I think, sadly, the largest one, and this is why I'm slightly torn looking at those demonstrations, because obviously, as you said, it's inspiring to see people who voice support for democracy, for fundamental human rights uh, on the street, and even temperatures were freezing. Some of those um, rallies had to be cut short, like in, in Hamburg and other places, because there were just too many people. So the organizers had sort of told authorities, yeah, we are expecting maybe 5,000 and then 50,000 or 150,000 showed up. So that was massive and, and, and indeed very, very impressive. The thing is, if, if you sort of from, from Britain or from, uh, from, from the US looking upon Germany, you'd think we're about to sort of be overthrown by an extremist movement, whereas in fact, we have probably the most left-wing government we've we've ever had. Who, in the coalition, says we've we've already sort of ticked off two thirds of what we planned for for this government period. So I'm I'm afraid to say that from a from a sort of public perspective, government at the moment is is seen as the problem and not the solution. Which is why AfD may not seem as an alternative many people, but certainly as a good way to show another form of protest against the actual policies. So just, just to give you an example, we had a, a survey from Allensbach Institute, which is a very renowned pollster doing long-term surveys um, for, for, for decades. And they came up with a with a poll saying that um, a vast majority, 70-80% of the people feel that in this country, um, people who work, who pay taxes, who pay their fees for for social social security, etc., aren't acknowledged, aren't respected enough. And given the fact that Olaf Scholz, when he campaigned in in twenty twenty one, used the term respect as as sort of the main slogan for for his political campaign, 
which he won, um, or won the elections, uh, there is, I think, a massive disappointment in what's been happening since. Does this all go back to 2015, Tanit, and the uh, arrival of so many migrants from Syria under Merkel? Is that the sort of root of, of it all? Well, it's certainly the root of the IFD's success because they'd been founded beforehand by, you know the story, some academics were actually anti-euro, anti-euro currency um, professors, business management professors, economists, and they've been sort of driven out of the party um, eventually by, by the extreme, uh, definitely extreme side. Part of the AfD is now monitored by our domestic intelligence service, for instance, in Saxony, for being outright extreme and anti-constitutional. But they were below the the five percent threshold. You know, we, Germany we have that threshold to actually be able to enter parliament. And they, in all the polls before 2015, and even by autumn 2015, they were on the on the verge of being irrelevant and significant minuscule. And then came the refugee crisis and. Basically, they, they, they started not rocketing through the sky, but they they gained more and more and more popularity. But when I say this, this was sort of 12%, 15%, what we're seeing now, again, in the polls, um, it's between 20 and 30%. Um, the last state election that we had in Germany, for instance, in, in Bavaria, you mentioned Hessen, and Hessen is not East Germany. This is not sort of the disenfranchised who had to suffer through the consequences of reunification and unemployment. Hessen is like core West Germany, Frankfurt capital of, of, uh, of our banks or, or, um, is, is, is in Hessen. And IFD came second after the CDU. And it may come first in one of the uh, East German states. We're going to see elections later this year. What you, you just said about um, people wrapping in a whole lot of complaints into a sense of protesting against the status quo and the AFD being the recipient of that protest right now reminded me somewhat of Brexit inevitably you know where people felt like they were given an opportunity to express a broad dissatisfaction at, at the way their lives were going and of course many of which with no expectation of actually winning the Brexit vote voted in, you know, almost in the certainty that they weren't going to win, but it was an effective way of protesting. And then, of course, they won. And history is is history. How close to to that is is what's unveiling itself in Germany? How close do you think is the potential for this sense of protest to actually manifest itself into something much nastier? I think up until a few years ago, it was mostly what you what you said, what you what you just analysed protest and the, the best way to annoy sort of the ruling class of the elites and to, to show them the middle finger was to vote for AfD. Not because people particularly liked it, knowing full well that the, the, it's, an, it's a nasty party, quite frankly speaking. The, 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 the leadership is not, it's not sympathetic or, or amicable in any way, sort of cool people you'd like to hang out with and have it be a Nigel Farage, by the way, is, is far more popular in a positive sense than than the AfD leadership and we're we're lucky we don't have a have a Farage, a Farage here. But um according to analysis surveys, polls that were sort of taken just after the, the last two state elections, which are quite representative of the country last year, it's now sort of fifty percent who vote for AfD for protest reasons and the other fifty percent because they're actually convinced that that's the, the right way to, to go, the far right way to go. So this means, effectively, that they're not going to go away because 
often if the, the reason to be frustrated and annoyed with the government goes away, then sort of that those parties or movements or whatever might go away too. If they've started sort of convincing people what they do, difficult to get rid of. Tanet, it's interesting that you say um, that it's fortunate there's no Farage. There's quite a lot of light on Alice Weidel uh, in the press in the UK at the moment, not least because she just did a a uh, Financial Times interview in which mm-hmm. she said, you know, yes. that Brexit was dead right and she'd certainly be willing to consider backing a, a German equivalent. She's the co-leader of the AFD and, and she's an unusual face for the AFD, at least superficially. You know, she's a young 44-year-old. She's in a gay civil partnership with a woman of Sri Lankan heritage, has two kids, a background at Goldman Sachs, the Bank of China. Um, is she a a, a, a serious sort of figure to be concerned about because of her sort of plausibility or or actually would they be better off with a kind of entertainer, a charismatic figure like Farage? Charismatic is the word I was looking for. So she is not charismatic. She is uh, very intelligent. She's eloquent. Um, but you wouldn't necessarily want to go out, have a beer with her. And I think we're we're in luck. Uh, if we had some like a Farage, that would make IFT maybe even, even more dangerous. So um, I, I was I was intrigued by that Financial Times interview and the what she called Dexit, so that they they might consider sort of moving Germany out of out of, uh, out of the EU, because this would be the single most helpful um, approach to actually get rid of AfD, because Germans overall are so massively pro-European. I'm, I'm saying this is sort of status quo now. This may change in twenty years' time when people feel okay. Why are Hungarians and Polish sort of getting what they want. Why, why are we paying for it all, etc., etc., etc.? It started differently in, in Britain too in the 1990s, and then Brexit happened in 2016. So I, I would never dare to go and predict uh, what what the public sentiment will be like in 10 years' time, in 15 years' time. But at the at the moment, and even even Marine Le Pen in France eventually figured out uh, sort of leaving the EU is not really a hit um, when it comes to electoral campaigns. Um, and at the moment would be would be a killer for for RFD, which isn't saying that some of the the things they um, they are voicing aren't and that's the trouble aren't aren't right. The European Union is incapable of solving the migration crisis in a way that is sustainable, sort of keeping human rights in as well as um, our sort of social welfare system, etc., 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 in a in a sort of balanced balanced way, and. If you look at, for instance, Ukrainian refugees, and people in Germany know those numbers, it's not that suddenly 30% of the country has turned right-wing extreme. That's definitely not the case. You have a certain number of people who are racist, who are xenophobes, but um, to, to say, oh, these are all sort of fascist weirdos who, who go vote for AfD is, is taking part of the population just not seriously. So look at Ukrainian refugees. Um, we have the statistics who say that in, in Poland and, and the Czech Republic, for instance, around two thirds of the re- Ukrainian refugees have been integrated into the into the labour market. In UK, Ireland, it's more than fifty percent. In Denmark, seventy four percent. Germany, eighteen percent. So we only have eighteen percent of more than a million Ukrainian refugees actually integrated in the labour market. Same, nearly the same in Switzerland and, and Austria. Interestingly, German speaking countries. So one of the reasons uh, why people think this is is that our um, social welfare measures are so incentivizing them not to work that simply they, they don't. Another reason, and I think it's a mix of both, is um, that bureaucracy 
because in Denmark they also receive a lot of social welfare, but they do work. That our bureaucracy is just impossible to maneuver through if you're Ukrainian, so you'd rather not bother and and then stay at home. And people see that, and with energy costs rising, cost of living rising, which interestingly, if you if you work and pay taxes and pay for your own, I don't know, heating, etc., and the heating cost goes up, you have to pay for it. If you are on social welfare and heating costs go up in Germany, you don't have to pay for it because the state will cover your your, your energy costs. So I, I think a vast part of AfD's popularity is that nagging feeling: what about me? Who cares about me? Why aren't those people in charge? Um, Doing, doing a lot more for me um, and not just for the Ukrainians, asylum seekers, etc. And we have to be very careful because those sentiments, my government cares more for other people than for myself, is, is it can turn toxic at some point. So I, I think Olaf Scholz and, for instance, in, uh, his minister for, for labor affairs, etc., they're seeing it, but I'm afraid they don't really have the means to, to change anything quickly. The German constitution is very different from ours. Is it like, I, I, I thought you don't, don't have one, actually. We don't, we don't have a constitution, <laughs> uncodified constitution. But it's described as a defensive democracy in that there are structural ways of, of combating um, anti-constitutional yes. behavior. And one of those is that a constitutional court can ban political parties. And it's happened a couple of times in, in history. But my question is, is is that viable with a party that is polling one in four Germans? You know, can a court say, well, we're just going to ban it? Because that then raises a question about, well, what kind of democracy have you got if you're completely wiping out the voting intention of 25% of the population? So legally, of course, it's possible because that's why, you, and you said it, the, the German constitution, Grundgesetz, is defensive, combative even. Um, it does not want to be abolished, abolished by its its enemies, like in the Weimar Republic. This is one of the lessons we we took from from Weimar. Um, so, if a um, if a party fulfills the criteria for being banned, then yes, it can be banned, no matter whether it's polling at fifty percent, at sixty percent, or at eighty percent. That's that's the the legal and not just the legalist view. However, um, you mentioned party bans having happened, which is very true in the 1960s. That was the last time, I think, was the Communist Party and uh, an ultra-right ultra, ultra -right nationalist sort of... The post. successor to the Nazi party, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. And ever since then, the Constitutional Court has made it very clear that they'd rather refrain from banning parties because politicians should sort of sort that out uh, in the usual democratic process. For the reasons you just mentioned, can, it, can a democracy really afford to just ban maybe opinions voiced by parties they're not comfortable with or basically have a, a government party get rid of the political competition. So this is extremely difficult. And we've lately seen it uh, with the NPD, which is a basically predecessor, far far right extreme predecessor of the AfD. And government uh, and other parties tried to have it banned for 20 years, <laughs> eventually being successful in, in banning it because the constitutional court said, well, by now it actually is fulfilling all the criteria. It is openly anti-constitutional. It wants to abolish the democratic German order, but it's completely insignificant. It's irrelevant. It doesn't have, even if it, it, it wants to do that, but it doesn't have the power to do it because it's so small by now, it, you can't ban it. What happened now was that they're going to be banned from tax cuts and any public funding. Okay. But people now thought, okay, now that's that's what we what we can do with AfD. But the criteria are the same. 
So I thought when uh, the chairwoman of the German Social Democrats, Esken, recently voiced that we should think about banning IFD, I, I thought it was just one of the most stupid things you could you could say in the current situation because IFD is of course going, wow, they're so scared of us, they want to ban us, look, we're, we're going to be the martyrs of democracy. They hate you. This is why they want to ban us. It was that that's the state of German sort of the governing party. And, and certainly echoes there of Donald Trump's approach in positioning himself. Yeah, obviously. Yes. Yes. There's one, one other thing I wanted to ask, which is the convention of the firewall that CDU, CSU, centre-right parties don't align themselves with parties that are considered to be far right. Um and far left, and far so and, and far left. It goes in, goes both ways. In, yeah. Indeed. Um, do you think there's any prospect of that firewall being broken, or at least becoming more porous as the AFD grows? Because you know, CDU, CSU are ahead. You know, they're leading in the polls, but they haven't got a coalition partner at the moment, do they? Well, I think you have to first differentiate between different sort of political levels. You have uh, the, the federal level, you have the state level, you have regional levels, you have local levels. On local level, city councils, town councils. You already see cooperation, not just of CDU, even of the Green Party with IFD, because you, you can't run a village any other way, depending on the majority. So, sort of having a vote on sh- shall we get uh, a, a new bus stop at that corner, people already, um, no matter which party, and we've there are proven cases of people voting either with IFD or IFD voting with them. So, on that local level, you do see, for sheer necessity of sort of making things work, you see cooperation with IFD. State level, federal level, uh, CDU is ruling out. And interestingly, that's why, why I mentioned ruling out, sort of cooperating either with the far left or the far right, where the Social Democrats never had a firewall towards the, the far left, which, by the way, didn't help them sort of cooperating with, uh, with the former GD, uh, GDR's uh, socialists. I'm, I'm afraid that we're going to see a very tricky phase this, this autumn when, uh, when we have those state elections, because the CDU might be well, by, by sort of media commentators and then other parties um, be pushed to prevent IFD f- to to form a government with the left, like the far left, which for, for the CDU is equally dangerous as cooperating or having a coalition with, with the IFD. So they are really between a rock and a hard place. Obviously, we don't know the outcome of those elections yet. Could be surprised. But so far, I think... Um, Again, on, on state level, on federal level, I think the firewall is going to hold because the CDU has a lot of mo- mostly moderate voters. So all the all the far right wingers they've already left they, they, they lost them to to the IFD. So they might lose uh, an enormous number of, of voters and even party members if if they cooperated with a nasty nasty party. And that's sort of the tricky situation. And if they want a policy change, and if you, if again, if you look at polls and surveys and why, why people are frustrated, they want a policy change. And at the moment, the the moderate left, the left, the Greens aren't really offering that any way of the policy change. The the social, social Democrats are basically run by their youth organisation, which is definitely far left of uh, of centre. And the the tiny uh, liberal free market liberal party is too small to, to form a majority government with uh, with the CDU. And that's, I think, one of the most decisive questions. You, you find political analysts who say that eventually the CDU may have to be tolerated by IFD, find some sort of agreement like that. I think it's, it's still too early to say. Um, and my hope would be for a more sort of sensible social democratic 
destiny to sort of be be, be more popu- popular among their own their own circles. The last federal election, the AfD, I think, had around thirteen percent, and they fared better among labor union members than among the general public. So they were more popular with labor union members who are traditionally SPD social democratic voters, and that's something that the SPD should think about and not sort of start finger pointing toward the CDU for uh, allegedly um, sort of supporting AfD policies or helping them. I think this is a, a actually a, a, a left of center problem as much as it, as it is a right of center. I guess there's something to be said for at least the problem is in a box with the AFD. You know, whereas in Britain, you've seen the sort of hard right policies of the Brexit Party and reform. This kind of nastiness bleed into the mainstream Conservative Party and become mainstream policy because. They, they are guided by the popularity of the extreme party and they want to adopt those policies. Um, is, is, is that a risk? Is that what you're saying, that there's a greater risk actually of of the mainstream parties saying, well, do you know what, well, maybe we better adopt a bit of that because it's clearly winning, you know? Well, it depends what you define as nasty. Um, and if, if you ask somebody who's not me, they m- might as well say, yeah, it's already bleeding in because look at Olaf Scholz. He's given an interview to Der Spiegel saying we um, we have too many irregular immigrants and we need to raise the number of sort of deportations, um, which again won't won't help because he, he won't get those numbers to any level compared to, to, to the level of, of, of people coming into the country. So this is a wider European problem, which as said before, is is hard. To, so if you ask other other commentators, they say, oh yeah, the, the the left-wing government is already, um, and he has been accused of that just last week by uh, one of the side of a future activists, saying that he's um, he's using a, a far-right or right-wing rhetoric. Then, secondly, far-right and right in, in Germany is quite often not differentiated. So the the, the rallies we, we talked about earlier, they're often called uh, rallies against the right, die Rechte, um, because. Rechte is seen as a synonymous by, by many people as far right, far right extreme. So we have a problem in this country that if you have sensible conservative positions, rule of law position, that uh, would, would not be considered far right in, in the UK, for instance, um, can easily be, be sort of dubbed uh, far right or, or rechts here. So it's sort of delegitimizing certain policies that are not nasty and not far right. Um, you don't have to be of the same opinion. You can see it quite differently. But the, the problem with the, with the political rhetoric is that quite often sort of left of center is trying to, to merge everything that is not not left of center as oh, this is all far right and this is all basically Nazi, Nazidom. And this doesn't go down well with the general public who are quite commonsensical and um I'd, I'd hope for the government to be again as well. Just last, last, last question for me is I've read analogies in, in uh, English speaking media with um, the expose of the conference of the AFD with the Vence conference in Potsdam, where obviously the final solution was discussed. Now, can you just put that into context and either dismiss it or say, well, there's something to think about there? Um, dismiss it. If you look at the Wannsee conference, if you know your history, look at the the numbers. You don't have and not the numbers, the the names. Um, that was the elite of the ruling party of the state at the time, and you didn't have to, to Google their names. Those names highlight that they, they were known. I had to Google the names of the people taking part at that 
Potsdam conference. I think the analogy was made because the Wannsee is there. It's eight kilometers distance. So, you know, we're journalists. We sometimes sort of find um, analogies where, where there aren't any. Uh, I think it's it's dangerous because it's it's sort of relativizing or belittling what actually happened at the Wannsee conference, which was the discussion about the final solution and and killing billions and millions of people. And you, you and had this I, is not- Eichmann and Heydrich leading the field, exactly. didn't you? Yeah. Yes, exactly. And not some, there, there, there wasn't, I think, some Austrian identitarian who is known, if you know those identitarian circles, and apparently we can't do without Austrians in, in, our, in, in our sort of extreme alt-right circles. There was a, an assistant of Alice Weidel present, but this was not sort of the, the creme de la creme um, of anybody sort of in the executive or, or party. Nevertheless, it's it's dangerous. It must be monitored. Just one last remark for me. What and that's another reason why I'm sort of torn by looking at that. Uh, those very positive pro-democratic rallies after October seventh, where we had an actual mass killing, mass rape people where we had swastikas painted at houses in Germany again because Jewish, Jewish citizens lived in, in there. The maximum of rally of people at a rally was 10,000 some say 30,000 but people there said 10,000 at the Brandenburg Gate and now to see 150,000, 200,000 in Munich and Berlin, Hamburg um, it just makes me wonder and I can't explain that yet yeah. um, why the, the, the event, the atrocious event of October 7th did not get more people on the street back then uh-huh. to be anti, anti-Semitism. Um, whereas now, because of a, a nasty, dangerous, awful, but fringe meeting of the alt-right is getting hundreds of thousands to the street. And I, 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 I don't really know why. Fascinating to watch. Fascinating. And uh, Tanit, as ever... You have shed so much light so on a much. very complicated subject. Um, and you can read Tanit every single week in the New European with her fantastic German explaining. Uh, must read. It's not always read. as heavy as this. Sometimes, it's a must read. Sometimes Tanit's explaining why you can't hang out your laundry in German. Or Wagner. Blocks and stuff Wagner. Like this. Or Wagner the Brilliant. next week. But it's oh, always, Wagner's heavy, though. <laughs> it's, always, it's always a great read. Thank you so much thank for you, joining Tanit. us from Bonn. Thank you, Matt. And thank, thank you, Matt. See you soon. Bye bye. Thank you soon. Well, that was uh, that fascinating. was fascinating. No, absolutely fascinating. And uh, I think there are so many questions coming out of that, which are and, really in- intriguing. And the, uh, what I keep trying to compare Britain and Germany in my head as Tanit's talking, but of course, I guess underpinning everything that's going on in Germany is the history. Yes, and that adds a prism to it, doesn't it? That and and I think, as Stanet said, there is a question which I I find myself increasingly worried about, and but knowing we have to do deal with it, which is what is the progressive answer to border control? Yeah, yeah. Because Labour has just come up with oh, smash the gangs. I mean, they're coming up to an election they don't want to, but actually, what we need to do is press the reset button. Yeah, and come up with a compassionate well-funded, well-resourced, non-Rwanda, non-populist answer to this, because there's going to be so much population mobility in all over the world, from America to Germany to here. This is the issue that keeps coming up. And, you know, if I do have a criticism of progressive parties and progressive commentators, 
we haven't answered this question in a way that, that, that responds to it. Well, wouldn't it be nice if somebody said, do you know what? We want our economy to grow. We need more people in Ab- our economy. Abs- there are people gagging to get here. I mean, Let's get them in and put them to great use. Step one is to say, I understand your concerns, but let me explain why this is necessary and good. Yeah. This um, is why it keeps coming back to me about... And I do, you know, I do accept the argument around our communities changing at the pace that is unacceptable for some people, right? But if you could just get over the Polsky shops and the, you know, yeah. that, that, that sense and appreciate the greater good, then we'd be in a better place, I, I think. I agree. And I think that one of the reasons that Take Back Control was such a dangerous and clever slogan in 2016 was that actually immigration has become a proxy yeah. for people's fear of change. I don't think... Most British people dislike their Polish neighbours or their yeah. Afro-Caribbean neighbours. Quite the opposite. Yeah. Um, but I think that, that it's become a kind of a metaphor yeah. and dangerously so. Yeah. And I, we need a progressive government to, to it, I mean, much of it's managerial and money, and, uh, but also a narrative that says this, is, this has long been a diverse country. And, it's gonna, and you know, it's going to stay being a diverse yeah. country. And you know what? That's a good thing. I keep thinking about the Vietnamese boat people back yeah. in the 70s and how it, the total I know the numbers were much, much smaller, but the whole idea of welcoming in Ugandan Asians, Ugandan Asians, you know, you know, uh, the Windrush generation, obviously they had to go through huge pain, but now are accepted as absolutely intrinsic to the fabric of this nation. Folks, you know, you are the country of Cable Street. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, um, on that uplifting note, we're going to take a totally different twist uh, for the part two. And we're going to discuss movies. And the, Oscar and the Oscars. Join us in a few minutes after this See you short in a bit. break. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday was the anniversary of George W. Bush's Axis of Evil speech. Then Tuesday marked the day that Oliver Cromwell was executed, despite having been dead for two years. On Wednesday, the debut of the first TV soap opera in 1949. On Thursday, we uncover the 19th century club for stoners. And on Friday, Gobbler's Knob saw its first ever Groundhog Day. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. 10 minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Two Mats podcast brought to you by The New European. Um, The New European is the paper standing against the kind of right-wing nationalistic, corrosive politics and media that we've seen drag this country down over the last few years. And if you want to do something positive about the state of the nation, then support our independent journalism. And you can do it for less than a pound a week. For a pound a week, you get all of the digital offering and our great new app. But for another pound, you can get the newspaper delivered every single week straight to your door. And that's a saving of more than 75% on the cover price. And it's the best way to support what we do. So please consider subscribing. Just go to www.theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S. There's a link in the show notes. And it'll be the best spent pound a week you make this week. In this year of all years. In this year of all years. Go for it. It makes sense. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And welcome back. Welcome back. So, Matt, um, big week in movie world. Big week in movie world. Oscar nominations announced yeah. on Tuesday. Should we have a little yeah. Simon Mayo, Mark Commode moment? Well, here's the thing is that I think it's the main takeaway, although it hasn't been the main story in uh-huh. the, the press, is it's just an amazing year for film. So it's just, been great, yeah. Just to list the nominees for Best Picture. American Fiction, which I haven't seen, stars Jeffrey Wright. Anatomy of a Fall, which I gather you yeah. you saw just now. I watched it yesterday and I thought it was fantastic because my it? wife watched it and hated it. Thought it was dull and boring, couldn't work out what the fuss was about. But I have a theory. What, I think there was something about my interest in judicial process. Yeah. The, so the French legal criminal system is markedly different to so the British legal is, criminal yeah. system. Inquisitorial. Whole, yeah, yeah, no, it was re- and I was fascinated it's by great, that. great, isn't it? And... Uh, so I thought the second half was great. But also, if you make any movie about anything and put a suffering child in it, I am an absolute wreck. Suck of, I'm a wreck by the yes. end of it. Yeah. So so it well, had me on that score as well. So that, which is yeah. great. Uh, Barbie. Yeah. The Holdovers, um, the 1970s Can't sort wait of nostalgia fest, which you will love. Yeah. Paul Giamatti, playing Paul Giamatti. Yeah. Um, Killers of the Flower Moon, the yeah. Scorsese epic. What did you make of that? Well, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think it's going to win. I mean, it's very hard not to like Scorsese. It's, yeah. it's and quite, De Niro was great. And De Niro is great. Maestro, the Bradley Cooper, uh-huh. Leonard Bernstein biopic. Oppenheimer, of course, which mm-hmm. I'm taking a vow not to go on about too much. <laughs> Past Lives, which was a is a gem, Steve Song's that. movie, beautiful film. Yeah, Poor Things, uh, Yorgos Lamenthos' latest 
Crazy Fest. Yeah, I haven't um, seen this one yet. Which you'll enjoy. And then um, The Zone of Interest, which is the adaptation by Jonathan Glazer of Martin Amis's novel and is a uh-huh. very, very dark and brilliant and compelling movie about Auschwitz. So yeah. that's it. It's the only category that all 10,500 members of the Academy can vote on. I was looking back through the lists for, you know, are there comparable years? And... 1940, they called it the outstanding production in those days, which I love. It's very yeah. 1940s. And that year, the nominees included Gone with the Wind, which won, Wizard of Oz, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Stagecoach, um, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, and Mice of Men. Pretty good. Well, well, right. that's a, isn't that amazing, though? Yeah. You, all of those films I've seen and, and I'm they're familiar all great. with, and they're still current, really. Right. In a they're way. all great. And then, and then another year, which was amazing, was 76. Um, the list was One Flow with the Cuckoo's Nest, which uh-huh. won. Barry Lyndon, yeah. great Kubrick film. Dog Day Afternoon, Al Pacino. Yeah, amazing film. Jaws. Yeah, I've heard of that one. Yeah. And, and Nashville, you know, amazing. Yeah. So my view is that the, the, the big thing we should be feeling is, in spite of all the warnings that cinema was dead, it really isn't. And not only that, movies of great worth and variety are being well, made. Well, the variety is the is word tremendous, I'd pick on. The spectrum you know? of quality so from, from Barbie to Oppenheimer. Such good news. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and the, the tally was Oppenheimer gets 13 nods, Poor Things gets 11, Killers of the Flower Moon gets 10, Barbie on 8. So they're the, they're the, the so, leading pack. Big question, what's going to win it? Well, I think Oppenheimer is the favourite. You hear a bit of um, buzz at the edges about holdovers. It's very, it's impossible to know because it's the only category that all all ten thousand five hundred members of the Academy vote on. Yeah, the voting system is complicated and and, and corrupt con- as well and controversial. <laughs> you know, and 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 this, of course, brings us on to the row because there is always a row. And there should be sometimes. So the, the, the row that was necessary, I think, was Oscars So White in 2015. Because it, they re- it really was, you know, scandalously neglectful of yeah. African-American talent. And when you think about the American cinema, you know, you've got, and indeed the global cinema, you, you know, the, the, the importance of black directors now. You know, Steve McQueen, Barry Jenkins, yeah. Spike Lee, Ava DuVernay, uh, Jordan Peele, Ryan Coogler. You know, the, 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 the Oscars needed to pull its socks up and it, and it has to a big extent but there's there's also a danger now where we've reached a point with the oscars where everyone is excited about the capes snub uh-huh. who's been snubbed yeah you know and people are more excited about the snubs than the nominations yeah and i think you have to remember is it, it isn't always a snub if you're not nominated you know <laughs> it's subjective judgment and the big subjective snub that well, was it's it the barbie, big, right? of course yeah. barbie because yeah. um neither greta gerwig in the best director category nor um margot robbie in the best actress category were nominated now just to break that down it is true that the best director category is probably the most sort of conservative traditionally it's a very small electorate of 587 voters of yeah. whom a quarter are only a quarter of women right however if you look at the just the bigger picture you know justine trier for anatomy of a fall is amongst the nominees so it's not that they left out women completely yeah also greta gerwig who i have been following with complete admiration 
um, since she was in Greenberg with Ben Stiller and Frances Hart in 2012, which is a marvellous film. She's a great director and has been nominated for Best Picture twice before, Little Little uh, Women and Lady Bird. Yeah. She is nominated as a, a producer, producer for, yeah. for Barbie. And she's also nominated with her other half, Noah Baumbach, for the uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. So, you know, she'll probably, she might well, you know, come away with a, Statuette. Well, exp- just explain one thing to me then. What is the fundamental difference in criteria or judgment or whatever between best picture and best director? The, the honest answer to that is the is the demographic of the electorate. Right. So you get ten thousand five hundred people voting. Almost, it's the closest thing the Academy gets to a popcorn judgment, okay. which is which okay. is the movie we really like. Which is why when Parasite won, it was such a thrilling and exciting and unusual thing because you yeah. know Parasite was an art house movie, Korean movie, and you know it it really took people aback. So I, I think it's open. You know, I mean, Barbie could win. I mean, yeah. the interesting thing about that list is that every single movie on that list is a plausible win- winner. Yeah, what, whatever they announce. No one will be entitled to say that's an outrage. That's and a scandal. Are the votes already in? For- I don't think so. So um, is it possible? No, 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 they're not. No. So they're not. So so people could react and say, oh, I think someone's going yes, I mean, okay, to get that, but we'll vote if, for this. And- if, for in, for, if, for example, people feel that it is totally outrageous yes. and patriarchal that, you know, Ryan Gosling was nominated for Ken in the Best Sporting Actor role, yeah. whereas Margot Robbie wasn't yeah. in the Best Actress, then they they can vote for Barbie as Best Picture. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I, I genuinely don't think that this is a an example of sort of wicked patriarchy. No. I mean, people may disagree. But just going down the list of firsts, just to demonstrate that the Academy is not, you know, wicked... Lily Gladstone, Best Actress, first Native American woman to be nominated for that category uh, for Killers of the Flower Moon. Coleman Domingo has a wonderful performance in a movie called Rustin about Baird Rustin, who is a gay member of the civil rights movement, very close to Martin Luther King. It's it's on Netflix. It's really good. Didn't get much play at all. And he's the first Afro-Latino man ever to be nominated for that category. Then uh, another movie that hasn't been very prominent, but is wonderful, called Nyad, about the the swim of a, a woman from Cuba to mainland Florida. Jodie Foster's been nominated for that mm-hmm. in the supporting category. And Annette Benning has been nominated for the lead role in that. Um, right. And the point about Jodie Foster is it's the first time two LGBT people have been nominated for playing LGBT characters. Uh-huh. Um and to keep going, for the first time, three foreign language movies have been in the running for Best Picture, Past Lives, Anatomy of a Fall, and The Zone of Interest. And last but not least, um, it's the first time in Academy history that three of the ten movies nominated for Best Picture, Anatomy of a Fall, Past Lives, and Barbie, were directed by a woman. Wow. Okay. So, I, I, you know, okay. I don't yeah. think, I genuinely don't think you can look at that list and say no. it's not diverse. It's not. No. Uh, it's a bit mad, the rower of a Barbie, isn't it? But- I think so. I mean, I think that some of it has looked a bit performative to me, to be yeah. honest, yeah. which is um, there's a kind of glee about it. We told you so. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, Barbie is cleaning up at the uh, in the awards cleaning up at the box office as well, uh, and 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 you know really yeah and and i think it's important you know no one is entitled to a nomination no um and i really don't think that what's kept out greta gerwig and margot robbie in this case is some sort of sinister patriarchal plot in no. this but I, I, no. that would have been plausible 10 years ago i i'm not sure it's plausible now i must say actually that i was much 
more angry when Margot Robbie was not nominated for Babylon last year because that was a I thought her performance in that was off the charts amazing yeah but that's again this is the point it's a subjective thing and you're never going to and you shouldn't reduce Oscar nominations to a kind of tick box thing you you do want representation and inclusion of course you do but there will always be an element of subjectivity in it that that just is do you think they do they still matter like they used to because they're not on I mean they're a news story the next day aren't they number three on the BBC news and then they the world moves on you know unless you're nerds like us and you yeah I I think that look um, they probably uh, help movies have a second sort of wind Uh, I mean I noticed that Oppenheimer is being pre-released again re-released um IMAXs all over the world so whichever wins it's a bit like the Booker Prize there'll be a push with it you're you're right to imply that um it perhaps doesn't have the the kind of velocity behind it that it used to one thing it does do is uh there's a very funny line in Brian Cox's as in succession Brian Cox's memoirs about um what happened when he he played Hannibal Lecter first yeah that's right I remember in in a movie called Manhunter um and then the role went to Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. And uh, Anthony Hopkins won the Oscar. And Brian Cox says in, in, in his memoirs, very amusingly, he didn't mind Anthony Hopkins winning the Oscar, but he did. it did bother him to this extent that your fee as an actor goes up exponentially. Right, Oscar once, winner, Once Anthony you've Hopkins. got that statuette yeah. Yeah. and they can put on the posters yeah. of all your films however rubbish academy award winner <laughs> yeah. anthony hopkins yeah. you you know you get the knighthood and you get a big big yeah. pay rise so i think they yeah. do matter on that to that extent yeah. you know they're a they're, they're a kite mark um and the fact that we're talking about it and the fact that there was a a big if confected row about barbie already this week shows yeah. that to some extent yeah. they matter and there's i think they, to be honest jimmy kimmel's going to be uh, presenting them for the second year in a Is row he? Oh, brilliant. yes okay and i think that they're still hoping after the the will smith yeah. slap of Chris Rock in 2022 Amazing. they'll never top that no but I think they're just hoping things go calmly <laughs> and without you know ultra violence um but you know to your point I mean they are not they they haven't got the the punch they used to but but they still <laughs> sorry to, to, um but they are they do matter yeah and people do talk about them and and yeah. and it's wonderful that they do yeah because you know, streaming and um, COVID and all these things have, you know, added fresh pressures to the movie business. And yet it refuses to die. And that's terrific, I think. No, I agree. And I think, you know, the fact that all of those films, all of them, I mean, I've I, I've seen five of them, I think. You've seen all but one. But the, they're all incredibly watchable. Yes. Good films, but for incredibly different reasons yes you know anatomy of a fall i like i say i was in pieces at the end of it but it was one of, i thought it was one of the most compelling kind of human intimate human dramas and you, you know when you watch a film and you know it's been written as a play to start with yes and I'm, i don't know whether that one had been i don't don't think it had but it had that it is a chamber piece quality, isn't it? it is a beautiful chamber piece and then you pan that over to something as epic as oppenheim yes you know i'll tell you one thing i was glad about because it it kind of confirmed my suspicions having left the cinema after Napoleon. Was that Napoleon didn't feature in any any of these no. lists apart from costumes and he stuff was like this? Snubbed, you know. But but it still has that. It, so there is a sort of integrity, I guess, in the list, isn't it? That it doesn't matter how big 
the scale of the project is. If it's not great work, then it's not going to. Yeah, feature. I mean, I th- I think um, actually they, they were spoilt for choice this year. Yeah, so definitely, yeah. you know, um, Todd Haynes's May December, which is a great movie, only got one nomination for best screenplay and. One of the films of the year, um, which is just opening now in in the UK, All of Us Strangers with Andrew Scott and uh, Paul Mescal, directed by Andrew Haig, picked up six nominations at the BAFTAs, didn't get anything at the Oscars. And that's, I mean, in another year, that would be in the running for Best Picture. It's a fantastic film. Let's just talk for a second before we close off about a film that probably most people haven't seen yet because it hasn't been out for long, is The Holdovers. Oh, which, yeah. Which is essentially a Christmas movie, isn't it? It is. And, um, well, it is literally a Christmas movie. But it's, it's it? by, uh, directed by Alexander Payne. Who, who, who was Sideways. Si- my my favourite film, I think. And reunites him with yeah. Paul Giamatti. Yeah. Uh, as Paul Giamatti. And it's um, very beautifully shot grainily and with lots of retro features as a 1970 movie. Yeah, um, and it's about a, a, a private school in, in in America where Jamati is the teacher. Yeah, and he is, for various reasons, compelled to be the the poor teacher that has to stay around in the school to look after the kids who can't go home for Christmas over Christmas. Right. And and that's really all it is. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a, a very very uh, affecting and beautiful film very funny great um and i can't recommend it highly enough and i think it's a sort of side bet actually i mean it's timed quite well because it's a talker at the moment Uh i'd be surprised if it won best picture but it wouldn't be ridiculous and if you had to hand the award over oh come on i mean that's a ridiculous question (laughs) Boom. Uh, yeah i mean i'm I'm, i don't want to go any further down that rabbit hole than i have to (laughs) it's bad enough for my family that i have to do it all the time Fantastic. Well, thank you for that. Uh, look, when when is the big night? It is in March. Okay, cool. Well, we'll come back to it with see how well we did with our March the tenth. March, March the tenth. All right, folks. There's the Oscars. March the tenth. Thank you for listening to the Two Mats podcast, brought to you by the New European. Please get in your questions, any feedback to the Two Mats at tnepublishing.com. That's the number two, m a t t s at tnepublishing.com. Or if you listen on Spotify, you can easily message us there. Very, very quick and easy to do. And that's exactly what South Nick did, who says, Do most journalists leave their political views at the office door? Matt Dancona presents centre-slash-centre-left views on the podcast. But his past jobs have been much further to the right. Do they, Matt? Do you leave your political views at the door and pretend to be a Marxist revolutionary in print? I'm an international man of mystery. I, must say, as you I know. noticed the, <laughs> the massive swing. I'm a, Mar- I'm a Marxist comedian. Yeah, I, d- I think they. Well, I mean, the answer is absolutely they do on some titles. Yes, but never on the new European. Not on the new European. We don't want them to do that. We want them to shoot from the hip. Uh, we are back with a new Q and A episode on Sunday. And remember our new subscription offer. Just go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. There's a link in the show notes. And if you like this podcast, you will love The New European. Support us by subscribing. Thank you to producer Matt Hill at Rethink Audio, ably assisted by Ollie Peart. And until next week... It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Goodbye. It's the other way round, isn't it? No. No, sorry. Yeah. That's, That's it. Right. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll cut that one out for the bloopers show. Yeah, the Christmas <laughs> bloopers. Goodbye. Bye.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 